0: You're listening to the Sportsman's Nation Podcast Network, brought to you by LaCrosse Boots. The LaCrosse Alpha Burley Pro fears nothing. Not the cold, not the harsh terrain, not the challenges of a grueling hunt. The Alpha Burley Pro comes in a variety of camo patterns and a variety of insulation options as well. Check out lacrossefootwear.com. LaCrosse Boots. Done right since 1897. Welcome
1: to the DIY Sportsman Podcast with your hosts, Garrett Prawl and Boudreaux Boswell. Hopefully everybody is having an awesome early September, getting ready for that season to open up right around the corner. And I think in a lot of places I've already seen some velvet pictures pop up. Obviously the guys out West have seasons that are already started, but I know that there's also some, it seems like in the Southeast, there's some early seasons Got to do some more research about that, see what kind of options are available. But anyways, first things first, want to give a shout out to Arrow Hunter, a fantastic partner of this podcast. We got a lot of good feedback from last week's episode, but I think that the person that enjoyed that podcast the most was Zach Stokes for winning that saddle. I know that uh, he has a size one kite now going to be on the way that he's going to get in the next couple weeks. So he'll have some good time to get familiar with that before the season actually kicks off. The Kite is Arrow Hunter's newest option for saddles. They had the Kestrel beforehand and they still have the Kestrel now. The Kestrel is made out of a Cordura material. It has quick release buckles for the waist and the legs. It's been a very popular saddle over the last few years. Now the Kite is just an option that is a little bit more minimalist. It's lighter weight than the Kestrel was because it has a mesh seat, two-way stretch on that mesh. The leg buckles are a lighter duty. They're still able to be disconnected, but not quite as quick as the quick releases on the Kestrel. There's a feed-through buckle on the waist strap, and then they've done a couple of modifications to kind of improve based on customer feedback. They took the Molly webbing and they've loosened that up, so it's now easier to put accessories into that Molly webbing. And the other thing that they've done recently is to improve the function of the lineman's belts. A lot of guys are using mechanical ascenders now. Basically, Arrow Hunter has figured out a way to use an entirely rope-based system to more easily adjust the amount of slack that you have in your lineman's belt. On this week's episode, it's going to be just me. Bobby is bouncing back and forth between some work obligations out east and then going up in the mountains. So he doesn't have much cell service availability. And I wanted to take this opportunity to really kind of go over some of the self-filming questions and, and setup and tips and all that kind of stuff that I've sort of learned over the years. So hopefully if you guys are interested in self-filming this is going to give you a good head start. Maybe if you've already been self-filming for a while, this will help you kind of refine or give you some additional things to try that maybe you haven't tried before. So to start off, I guess to give kind of a background of how long I've been filming. So I first started hunting when I was 14 with a bow. I had hunted before that with a, a gun. But when I was about 15 to 16 years old, that's about when I first started to get into filming. I've been filming ever since. So essentially I've been doing this for quite a while and I haven't really filmed others much and I haven't really been filmed much. Pretty much all the stuff that I've been doing and the stuff that you see on the YouTube channel, that's pretty much all just self-filming. So I've made a lot of mistakes along the way, blown some opportunities, but I also think that I've kind of refined the setup as much as at least I think I can at this point. To give you guys a quick overview of the equipment that I use now. For the cameras. I have a main camera and I have, you know, kind of second angle action camera, so to speak. So for my main camera, I'm using currently a Sony AX53. Prior to that, I had used a Sony AX100, and that one was a great camcorder. Absolutely loved it. The only thing that caused me to change essentially was that the AX53 was significantly smaller and lighter. That meant it was easier for me to pack as a cell filmer. And the other main difference was that it had much better image stabilization, which wasn't a huge deal if I was using it on a camera arm, but just in general for taking you know, footage while walking or anything like that, the boss image stabilization in that AX53 uh, was pretty remarkable. Uh, but the main thing for me was just the size and the overall weight. And I was able to sell that AX100 used and make enough money off of that camera to basically fully fund the AX53 because it's a little bit cheaper camcorder. There were a couple things that I lost out on going to that cheaper AX53. One of them was the fact that with that AX100, it had a lot bigger image sensor, which helps with kind of your depth of field. It also helps with low light. I haven't had too many issues with the low light, at least not something that's going to make a, a make or break type of decision on a YouTube video, for example. The other downside that people need to be aware of with the AX53 is that the lens cover is automatic. So when you turn on the camera, that lens cover opens up all by itself. and makes a nice loud click. So in order to get, you know, kind of bypass that click, what you need to do is as the cameras turned off, you can reach into that lens cover and actually just kind of manually open it up with your fingers. And once you get it about halfway open, it'll kind of open up automatically the rest of the way and it does so pretty quietly. So then when you actually do hit the power button on the camera, the lens cover is already open. So it doesn't make any additional noise but that's something you got to be aware of if you're thinking about getting an AX53 that I've noticed. The AX100, you had to use a separate lens cap, so it wasn't really an issue. And for my camera arm to hold that camera, I have a fourth arrow camera arm and that camera arm, depending on whether or not I'm using it for a saddle or a hang on tree stand, I'll use a different arm. So the base is the same regardless. I have that fourth arrow shoulder and then I just kind of I did some modifications to it just to swap out some of the steel components with aluminum to make it a little bit lighter. But uh, for the saddle, I have a custom arm, two segment arm, and the top arm is a little bit shorter. For the hang on, I actually like three total arm segments. So I use just the the standard arm that Fourth Arrow sells, and then I also use their extension that they sell. And I think now they also offer a different, you know, sort of three arm segment that's a little bit more compact. But I'm really a huge fan of the way that that fourth arrow arm levels with that shoulder. It's probably the best thing that I've tried. I've tried a few different things over the years. I had a lone wolf arm initially, the strong arm. They don't make that one anymore. And then I used a hunting beast camera arm like that one. Uh, But, you know, so far for the fourth arrow, it just, it's so fast and easy to use for that shoulder leveling. Now, for the other cameras, on the bow, I'm currently using a Tacticam 4.0. The Tacticam mounts onto, well, you can use it either as a stabilizer mount on your bow, you can mount it on your head. You have a couple different options there. When I put it in the stabilizer mount, typically what I find is that it's good for filming after you release an arrow, it's good for filming before you take a shot. I find that, you know, especially when I have it on the 5X zoom mode, it's really hard for me to see where the arrow hits. As soon as that shot goes off, there's obviously vibration, especially when the camera's sitting out at the end of the stabilizer, which if you've ever seen a stabilizer in super slow motion, there's a lot of vibration going on there. And then more so than that, the bow usually tips a little bit, depending how the stabilizer set up and, you know, kind of the angle I took the shot at. So usually that camera isn't great for me actually seeing where the arrow hit, but it's good for getting some of that additional footage, especially if I'm not able to get the main camera on where I want it to be. And then I also like to have a camera that is pointed at me in the third person. When I first started filming, I pretty much just had my main camera on a camera arm. I didn't have any additional angles. So it put a lot more pressure on me to get B-roll shots to be able to plug in. And I would always have to do those after or before the actual hunt. Because otherwise, if you're just watching main camera footage the entire time, it can get kind of hard to follow. It's nice to be able to break up the imagery a little bit. So what I do now is I have a little Sony... AS100V that I use. I bought that one several years ago. They have upgraded models now. Uh, The two best ones that they have right now are a uh, AS300V and then they also have an X3000 and that one has really good image stabilization but it's, it's kind of overkill for a camera that you would just set up and actually point back at yourself. But I mean, essentially any action camera, wide angle, fisheye type camera works well for that third angle that's pointing back at you. It can be a GoPro, could be a you know Chinese knockoff or whatever. If you're not looking to spend a ton of money, those are kind of hit or miss in terms of the overall quality. Customer service is pretty bad typically and you know kind of a low light and audio quality. It's all going to be kind of hit or miss. So if you're willing to spend a little bit more money, that's what I would recommend going with a big name brand like a Sony or a GoPro, something like that. Typically, you're not going to have any regrets. And then the way that I'll kind of use all those cameras together is I will just insert the footage from a particular camera where it makes sense. I'll typically always use the audio from the main camera because it's the best quality by far. And then when I splice the other shots over top of that main footage, I won't use the action camera audio. I'll just use that audio still from the main camera. And while we're on the discussion of audio, I really prefer the quality that you get with a shotgun mic and a wind cover. On my Sony right now, I'm using a Rode VideoMic Pro. The Rode VideoMic Pro is roughly like a $180 to $200 mic, depending on where you buy it from. I bought mine on eBay. A lot of my camera stuff I have bought on eBay used typically because you usually have the opportunity to return it right away if it's not as described, Uh, but you can always get usually better deals. It seems like people take care of expensive camera equipment better than other items. So I've had pretty good luck that way. That microphone does run on a nine volt battery. There are other models that you can basically plug right into the camcorder and use the power from the camcorder to power the mic. So there's a big convenience factor there because if you turn on the camcorder, everything else gets turned on with it and all you have to do is press record. The downside to the mic that I have is that not only do I have to turn the camera on, but I also have to turn the power on the microphone itself, or else it won't record any audio. The advantage though of having the microphone that has the external battery is that I really like the audio quality that it has. It allows the microphone to use its own power to boost the audio signal that it's receiving and send a better signal into the camcorder so the gain can be a little bit lower on the camcorder itself, versus if you were doing a, a microphone that used the camera's power all of that internal signal processing boost is happening within the camcorder. And usually the technology inside the camcorder isn't as good as the stuff that would be in the microphone itself. So it's kind of a convenience versus quality thing for me. I'm pretty happy with that Rode VideoMic Pro personally, but uh, if you want something a little bit easier to use, something like a Rode VideoMic Go would be a little bit more convenient. So we've talked about the main camera, the action cameras, the microphone on the main camera, I also like a remote big time for self-filming. What a remote allows you to do is control the power of the camcorder, control your recording, control your zoom, and in some cases it allows you to control your focus as well. All from basically a remote that is attached to the handle of the fluid head that the camcorder is attached to. And with the remote, you know, for many years I didn't use a remote. I just would basically press all the buttons directly on the camcorder itself. And the issue that You would eventually run into was that there's more movement involved with moving your hand to the top side of the camera to adjust the zoom rocker and then moving to the back side of the camera to hit the record button and then moving over to the other side of the camera to do some other thing and with having everything right on the remote it just reduces the overall movement that you make in the tree which is obviously important but it also allows you to spend more time with your eyes on the deer versus eyes on the camera. I can't tell you how many times I've been looking at a deer, then move my eyes down to the camera to adjust something. And then by the time I move my eyes back to the deer, it's got me pinned because it saw the movement. So the specific remote that I have for my Sony camera is a Fotka knockoff remote. So Sony basically makes a remote that plugs into basically with a USB. They have some kind of proprietary port name for it, but with a lot of their cameras, it'll work. I can't remember the name of the Sony one specifically, but Fotga F-O-T-G-A on Amazon makes one that's pretty much identical. I haven't really had any issues ever with it. And the only downside to this style remote, whether it's the Sony one or the the Fotga one, is that it doesn't adjust focus. So if I wanna do manual focus, I still need to use the ring on the front of the camcorder. Otherwise, everything I can do is basically just right on that remote. And then regarding the fluid head, I just used the fourth arrow one that came with the camera arm. I know a lot of guys like Manfrotto as well, uh, but I haven't really had any main issues with that uh, that fourth arrow one. With some of the cheaper fluid heads, the issues that you can run into are kind of you know sticky performance. You're not going to get smooth t- pans and tilts. And in cold weather, sometimes the grease that they use to be able to lubricate the head doesn't perform very well. It gets real thick and it makes it hard to move that camera. Typically with fluid heads in general, you kind of get what you pay for. And the more you pay for a fluid head, the better quality it's going to have. You just also need to make sure that it also is not overkill for the weight of camcorder that you have and that you're matching them well. So that's pretty much a rundown of the equipment that I use. You'll also see that it's pretty popular for people to use DSLRs or mirrorless cameras to be able to film hunts, especially if they're filming other people because you can use different lenses to get different kind of effects. And usually the image sensors themselves are quite large. So, there's a lot of creative freedoms that you have with a camera like that. They're also good at taking images, so you can do time lapses and everything on kind of the same camera. And for a while I used a mirrorless camera to be able to film my hunts. Mirrorless and DSLR are very similar in the fact that they're both interchangeable lens cameras. The technology between them is a little bit different, so that's where you get the distinction. But the camera that I used was a Sony NEX-5R. And then I had the kit lens that came with that camera. And I also bought multiple used lenses that were just manual focus lenses, meaning they didn't communicate with the camera itself. I basically had to adjust focus and aperture on my own. And really the only, I mean, the biggest downside for self-filming specifically, because obviously these cameras have remarkable capabilities and you can do a lot with them in the right setting, but for self-filming, they are more of a hassle. So that was one of the main reasons I went back to a camcorder was because the camcorder, everything is made to basically, you know, if you think about a camcorder, what are they selling these things mostly to? They're selling them mostly to consumers, people filming their their kids, you know, sporting events and things like that. So they're designed to be very simple. Whereas a lot of the more video-centric DSLRs and, and cameras, if you ever go out and watch people that film professionally with those type of rigs, usually they have literally just giant rigs that everything is mounted to. They have the camera, and then oftentimes they'll have, you know, a lens hood. They'll have a focus ring that allows them to do the focus from a location that's closer to their body. They'll have audio recorders and microphones attached. They'll have video monitors often. And so the overall rig for doing a professional shoot like that is very complicated compared to a camcorder. So you have a lot more you know, creative freedom in what those type of systems can do. For self-filming though, usually they're more hassle than they're worth, in my opinion, and you know the experience that I had filming with them. But if you do want to go that route, what I would recommend is making sure that you have one that you can plug a microphone directly into. And not only that, but also one that you can adjust the microphone levels manually because a lot of them you can plug a microphone into, but then they're always on auto gain control, which you don't necessarily want. The other thing I would look for is the ability to, you know, use a remote. I would use lenses that are mated to the cameras. So if you go kind of the manual focus route, it makes everything a little bit harder and it increases the amount of movement that you need to do in the tree. But if you use a lens that communicates with the camera, then you're able to control everything more centrally. And if you have lenses that have image stabilization built in that makes a huge difference. So those manual focus lenses, a lot of times they do not have any kind of image stabilization. So even the slightest little shake always gets magnified on the camera. But if you have, you know, the budget and depending on what you want to get into with this whole filming thing, if you want to do a lot of nice B roll shots and time lapses and all that kind of stuff, absolutely. DSLR or mirrorless camera is a great option. I would venture to guess that the most common question I get that's filming related is either what type of camera should I use if I'm just starting out or I found a great deal on camera X, what do you think of it? And typically these are very hard questions to answer because oftentimes, especially if the price range is, you know, underneath $500, which to be honest, if you're not a hundred percent sure that you want to get into this It doesn't make sense to spend an arm and a leg before you realize that, oh, I didn't like this as much as I thought I would. So I'm definitely not opposed to spending a lower amount of money to start out. But it does make the camera selection process a little bit more challenging because I can't necessarily just go out and know what kind of performance you're going to get out of a smaller camcorder like that. Typically, there's a lot of similarities between all the cameras in that category. But there could also be a little bit of minor differences just in terms of how they operate and how the menu is laid out and that type of thing typically though with a cheaper camcorder you're not going to have the ability to plug in an external microphone so your auto quality is not going to be quite as good you're also not usually going to be able to plug in a remote so that means you're going to have to do the power and the record and the zoom on the camera which Not a huge deal. Again, the remote just makes everything a little bit easier and helps hide your movement a little bit more. You're also not usually going to have a manual focus ring, but it doesn't matter quite as much with those cameras. And I'll kind of explain this a little bit further. So the image sensors on a very cheap camera typically are very small image sensors. Image sensors that are small usually aren't going to have the best quality. The low light isn't going to be quite as good. They usually have very good zoom ratios because of that, though and they usually have very large depth of field, which means that just about everything is going to be in focus at once. So if you have a camcorder with a large depth of field and pretty much everything is going to be in focus at once, then manually focusing isn't going to be quite as critical. If you have a camera with a big sensor, large aperture, and you get that nice shallow depth of field, the kind of that cinematic look, it makes hitting the right focus way more critical. So again, you're not going to always have that manual focus ability, it doesn't matter quite as much as those on those cheaper cameras. If you want to kind of get into this on the low end and try it with a cheaper camcorder, definitely, you know, do as much research as you can. There's not really a whole lot of things that I could say you really need to look for on those cheaper cameras, because like I said, a lot of them are just going to be so similar that it almost just makes sense to pick one up that you can get the best deal on before you figure out if it's something you want to invest further into. regarding equipment regarding equipment and camera selection in general it's just it's a huge huge can of worms if you really want to dive into it and get into the weeds i mean back when i was first really starting to get into filming i was almost getting into it in the level that it was almost a secondary hobby not just something that i was using to film my hunts but i was actually getting into the camera side of things and so i was always on you know dslr forums and video forums trying to learn. I was doing lynda.com tutorials to learn better videography uh, skills. And I mean, just like people argue about what the best broadhead is on camera forums, people argue about what the best camera or camcorder is. It's really hard to pinpoint one and say this one is the best for your needs because there's going to be some personal opinions and brand loyalties. And then it obviously depends a lot on what exactly you're trying to do. If you have a cameraman or you're acting as a cameraman, it makes packing your stuff a little bit easier because you just got one guy that all he has to worry about carrying into the woods is his camera stuff. So usually just a backpack's fine, but when you're self-filming, then all this stuff kind of has to fit into your overall system. You can't just have a tree stand and a couple sticks and call it good like you used to be able to. So depending on what system I'm using, it'll determine how I carry my camera gear in. So I'll kind of go over saddle setup, as well as tree stand setup. So I'll cover tree stand first. Back when I had my hunting beast camera arm, I would essentially lay my lone wolf down on the ground. I would lay the hunting beast camera arm flat on top of the tree stand. I would then lay my climbing six flat on top of the tree stand, bungee that stuff down. And then I would have an additional small backpack that would have my camcorder, uh, the, the shotgun mic and any other essentials that I needed for the hunt. And I would just lay that down along with any additional clothes that I wasn't going to wear walking in. And I would bungee those all to the stand as well. So then you end up getting the tree stand acting as a frame pack. You got everything lashed onto it. And then you put that on your back and start walking. And that works, you know, work pretty well. I also, with the fourth arrow, kind of transitioned more to just keeping everything in a larger pack, just because that fourth arrow arm with the shoulder doesn't lay quite as nicely on the stand itself. And it's kind of meant to be taken apart. Whereas the B style arm was all pretty much one piece. You weren't really taking that thing apart to be able to pack it. So with that fourth arrow arm, I would essentially have a larger backpack and I would have the main shoulder and arm segments in the main portion of the pack. And then in side pockets, I would have my shotgun mic. I would have my camcorder And then I would have in kind of the smaller accessory little pockets and stuff, extra batteries and things like that. So then I would lay that on top of my climbing sticks on the stand along with any additional clothes and just bungee everything down. With a saddle, you have a platform, but it's obviously not the same style of platform. You're not going to be lashing stuff onto it and carrying it in like a frame pack. So what I do typically with a saddle is I will have a pack that has pretty much the same setup as what I would use with the fourth arrow for a tree stand. So I have the arm segments and the shoulder in the main portion of the pack, camcorder, microphone, batteries, and accessory pouches. And then I just wear that backpack. And then usually for climbing sticks or wild edge steps or whatever I'm going to be, you know, carrying in or using as a climbing method sticks, I would usually just put on the outside of the pack and then just clip it on with the accessory straps on the outside of the pack, along with any clothes with the wild edge steps, I would just leave that inside the pack and zip everything up nice and clean. And that type of setup seems to work pretty well. As an addition, you can, you know, use the sticks with like a duffel bag strap and carry them on your side instead of lashing them on the outside of the backpack. But the point is, you know, you're going to have some minor differences with how you carry things, whether or not you're using a tree stand or a saddle, but there's ways to do both and they're both pretty clean and straightforward. Once you get to the tree, again, the logistics can be a little bit different depending on what exactly you got. When I used either my lone wolf arm or my hunting beast camera arm, what I would typically do is i get to the tree, I would lay everything out on the ground. So if I'm using a tree stand with climbing sticks, I'm laying the climbing sticks down on one side of the stand. I'm taking the backpack off, laying it on the other side. And then I'm usually using a pull rope two pull ropes with the stand is typically what I would use. I would use one pull rope on the bow and one pull rope on the pack. And then I would climb up the tree like normal with the tree stand on my back and the climbing sticks either in my hand or in little uh, loops of paracord there on the harness. I'd climb up the tree, set the stand, climb into the stand with my safety harness and tether all ready to go. And then I would pull up that first uh, rope, which had the pack on it, set it on the seat, and then I would just kind of pull the camera arm out first, set that and take out the camera and the microphone, attach all that. So my camera is basically ready to go. At that point, I'd also set up any of the second angle cameras that I would have, like I kind of place them where I'd want to. Hopefully there's like some kind of a branch or something where I could use a gorilla pod type of attachment to be able to get that second angle looking back at me. And then I would take that second pull rope and pull up my bow. And then at that point I'd be ready to hunt with the saddle what I would typically do is I'd bring up the camera arm with me the first time. So I usually will have the pack on my back and then the platform will be on one of my paracord loops on my, my saddle itself. And then I usually have one climbing stick on the other hip on my saddle. And then the first stick I'm putting right on the tree. The second stick I'm usually carrying up with me and at that point is when I put my lineman's belt on. So oftentimes I'm just using three sticks when I'm hunting out of a saddle. I'll climb all the way up in one trip, hang that platform, climb onto the platform, my tether attached, and then at that point, I pull out my utility strap, hook it around the tree, take my backpack off, hang it on the utility hook, and then I kind of pull everything out, set up the camera equipment, and then I would pull up my bow with my single pull rope. So only one pull rope with a saddle, whereas with the tree stand, oftentimes I was using two to be able to make everything in one trip. And obviously you don't have to go in one trip. If you want to, you can take your time set up the stand first, then make a second trip, hang up the camera equipment. It's kind of personal preference. I I just find that I like to be as, you know, efficient as I can, and that for me means making one trip up the tree. As long as it's not being overly cumbersome and you're making noise and that type of thing it should be fine. With the second angle camera, out of a tree stand, the easiest thing to do is to actually, you know, use a screw in mount to be able to mount the camera, point it back at yourself, whether it's on a limb, whether it's on a you know the trunk of the tree itself and you're just pointing it straight down at you oftentimes you know i'm hunting on public land so i can't necessarily bring a screw in mount to be able to mount that camera to so i will use a strap to be able to mount the camera onto the tree and like i said before a Joby Gorillapod style of mount often works well if you have a branch to be able to attach it to the other thing you can mount the camera to is the bow itself sometimes mounting the camera onto the bow and pointing the camera directly at your face can be a cool view you see that one quite a bit in hunting TV shows, the only thing about that one, <clears throat> at least in my opinion, is that it's super easy to recreate. So, if you have a camera mounted on the bow, pointing it back at you, you're only going to see yourself. You're going to see the tree. You can c- capture that footage at any time. Whereas, if you have a camera, say, up above you, pointing down at the ground, you also have the opportunity then of capturing the deer in the scene if it happens to come, you know, right underneath the tree. So, for that reason I usually like to have that camera overhead looking down so you can get kind of a you know some additional view that could capture something live that you wouldn't otherwise be able to get. Different people have different kind of creative opinions on what shots you should get live versus what shots you can kind of recreate. You know, when I first started off I was obviously just using that main camera so I had to do a lot of B-roll and I had to film a lot of stuff after the fact. Now that I have more cameras at my disposal, I like to have as many cameras running as possible so that I can just splice that stuff in. And if I happen to capture something on one of those second angles that looks cool live, then great. Any kind of reactions or expressions, I like to be able to, if I don't get them live, film them as soon as possible after it happened, just so that you don't lose the overall realism. The more cameras you have running, the less B-roll and editing you need to do because you can capture that B-roll live. The disadvantage is it's more setup time. You're running through more batteries and you got to sift through more footage and editing to be able to capture the portions that you need. I want to touch on recording formats. So 4k is huge right now. 1080 is known as kind of full HD. You also have 720 HD and then standard definition, which is like what all the DVDs used to be is 480. In terms of resolution, it's not everything, but it certainly helps. So what I mean by that is you can have a really expensive high-end camera that films in, st- in a regular full HD, like 1080, compare that to a cheap consumer camcorder that is recording in 4k. And you might say, oh, wow, that footage looks a lot better on that professional camera that's recording in just in standard HD. So resolution isn't everything. Same thing with cameras. You buy a camera that has 20 megapixels, but it's a cheap camera. It might not look as good as that real expensive professional quality camera that only takes a 10 megapixel image there's more to it. You know, there's, there's sensor quality is huge lens quality, all that kind of stuff plays into it. But that being said, when I export a video to YouTube, I just about always will export it in 1080. And I just about always now film my self-filming hunts in 4k. And the reason for that is uh, twofold. One, I like the way that the image quality looks when I film it in 4k and I uh, encode it down into 1080. The other thing is it gives me a little bit more leverage when I'm cropping various scenes. So if I'm filming in 1080, I'd like to have everything pretty much framed perfectly. So I don't have to do any kind of cropping at all. But when you're self-filming, it's really hard, obviously, to capture everything that you want in the frame and keep everything framed so it looks nice. So what's easier to do? Zoom out a little bit then you're more likely to capture the stuff that you're looking at inside the frame and less likely to have the deer walk off the frame right before you shoot, for example. But when you're recording in 1080 and you're zoomed way out back, then you end up getting kind of a GoPro effect where it's really tough to see what's actually going on, especially if you're zoomed out all the way on one of those consumer camcorders and the deer's at like 30 plus yards, it gets pretty tough to actually see what you're looking at. But if you're filming in 4k, then that gives you the leverage to crop that footage down to get a more zoomed in appearance without losing quality because you're able to leverage those extra pixels. That's why I personally like filming in 4k. The file sizes are bigger so you need a bigger SD card. That part of it is kind of a pain. It takes longer to transfer the files. It takes more computer processing power to handle that 4k but the overall net benefit is there for me. With the second angle cameras I'm pretty much just filming in 1080. Reason being SD card size, usually those second or third angle cameras, you just leave them running for a long, longer period of time. So if you just leave it running for like a two or three hour hunt, that's a huge file to be able to download once you're actually done. So, and usually filming a 4k uses more battery, more processing power than a 1080 uh, does. So I usually get better battery life out of 1080. And then when I just use that footage, it's typically just drag and drop. I mean, I'll take that footage overhead. It's not like the camera's moving around. So I don't need to worry about image shake or anything like that. I'll just drag whatever 1080 footage is there, put it over my main camera footage and just use it. And then export the whole project. Once I'm done cropping and doing uh, whatever else I'm going to do, I'll edit that and export it as 1080. Now, is there any reason I couldn't just film in 4K and export in 4K? No, I probably could. And there's some people who say, at least for like YouTube, for example, that if you upload a video in 4k, it might be more likely to get boosted by YouTube. I don't know how much of that is actually true. I think that algorithm is always changing, but people are going to, you know, use their footage for different purposes. Some people are trying to get their stuff on TV. Some people are just saving it for their own personal memories, right? So it kind of depends on what you're trying to do. And for me so far, at least exporting the whole thing in 1080 is just a much easier thing to do. And I would think that, you know, in terms of most people watching the the videos, I haven't ever heard a complaint about the image quality not being up to what the expectations are. And a lot of that is not only just in the camera or the resolution that you're filming in, but how well everything is filmed, how well everything is uh edited, etc. So that's usually the second biggest question I get is regarding video editing and kind of what software you should use or what software I use. And for pretty much my entire history of video editing I've used Adobe Premiere. Back when I was in high school, I took a digital communications class. We learned some real basic stuff about uh, editing audio, splicing music together, that type of thing. And then we did some video work. We used Adobe Premiere Elements, which is like a, a cheaper version of the Adobe video editing software. The professional stuff that they have, which now is called Adobe Premiere CC, is a subscription service now. I was lucky enough to get a CS6 license back when I was in college. And when I was in college, I was able to get student pricing, which was a significant discount. So I was able to buy the entire Adobe Premiere or the entire Adobe, uh, what do they call it? It It wasn't just the video editing. It was like an entire suite. So it included Premiere Pro. It included After Effects. It included Adobe Audition. It included Photoshop, Lightroom, a whole bunch of kind of the creative Adobe products in their professional versions. And I was able to get that for like a couple hundred bucks with that student license. And since the CS6 version was basically a buy once and use forever, I can continue to use that. Whereas if you're going to do the the CC now with Adobe, you have to purchase it as a subscription-based service. The advantage of the subscription-based service is that you never have to buy a new license every year. They just kind of integrate the updates into the software. So like if you download an app on your phone, those updates just kind of come, you know, fairly regularly and you don't have to worry about it. So you're always getting new stuff. You're always getting bug fixes and that type of thing. Whereas the CS6, eventually, however many years down the road, that's going to be outdated. I might want to get something new, but for the time being, it's definitely serving the job well other products that people will use on kind of the professional end. I know in addition to Adobe final cut pro is often used as a professional editing software. I will say this though, you definitely do not need a professional video editing software to do a good job at editing and exporting videos for, you know, YouTube, for example, sharing with your buddies. There are plenty of free softwares and there are plenty of low cost software options that will work. I don't have first hand experience with a ton of them, But there's definitely a lot of options out there. Usually, you know, Mac computers or Windows computers will have something like Windows Movie Maker, or I don't remember what the the Apple version of it is, but they'll have real simple uh, video editing options where you can just kind of drag and drop footage and splice it, but you don't really have a lot of creative control. There are software, there's a software called uh, PowerDirector, PowerDirector Ultimate, I think it is, and that can come as a suite. It's like less than a couple hundred dollars. I know uh, a few people on YouTube that are fairly big creators that use that software package, and there's a lot of other ones out there. And I'm sure if you go actually to Google or YouTube and search, you know, video editing software on a budget, or if you can find the free one on your computer and look up tips to be able to to learn it better, that's going to be a good place to start. Much better, in my opinion, than. Spending a lot of money to purchase professional video editing software when you can't even know how to utilize a lot of the professional features that you're actually paying for. I used to put a lot more work into video editing than I do now, especially back when I was in that phase where I was using the the mirrorless camera and I was, you know, really into the in the stuff that uh, like Heartland Bowhunter was putting out and inspired by a lot of the the sick of films and stuff like that. I was getting really, you know, deep into Getting the exact lighting and the exact you know kind of shots that I wanted, I was really into color grading uh, to be able to sort of play around with how the color looked and, and getting a certain color profile and a certain look to the overall footage. And so now, what I'd pretty much do, at least for the majority of my videos, is much simpler. Now I'm basically taking footage straight from the camera. I'm dragging and dropping out of the timeline. I'm splicing off the segments that I don't need. Make putting it in an order that makes sense, boosting the audio if needed so that it sounds nice and clear. And then pretty much the only thing I'll do is I'll add cross dissolves for certain transitions. Some cross dissolves, I'll use a dip to black, especially if it's like, you know, footage goes from one day to the next day, a dip to black is kind of a nice transition to use for something like that. A dip to white is something that I'll use to kind of speed up a certain uh, segment of footage. Like let's say a deer comes in and it hangs around for five or ten minutes, uh, but the action's still kind of going on. It's just kind of, you know, drug out a little bit. A lot of times I'll just cut out large portions of that footage where there's not much going on, and I'll connect them with really short dip to white transitions. And that's just kind of my personal way of, you know, kind of letting the audience know that the action's still going on. I'm just, you know, kind of cutting out some of the slower, more boring stuff. And you don't have to use any kind of transitions at all. I think a lot of the, one of the mistakes I see a lot for like people that are first starting to upload or create videos is that like to use the real fancy looking transitions like the the page swipe and the star transitions and stuff that's in there, you know, free or cheap editing softwares. And really when you get to like high end video, nobody uses that type of stuff at all. It kind of looks, it looks kind of cheesy. I mean, obviously it's your creative opinion to do whatever you want to do, but typically straight cuts dissolves and dip to white or black. That's like of what a lot of people are going to be using to edit video from one uh, scene to the next or one camera angle to the next. Especially if I'm going from one camera angle to the next, I'm not really ever using any transitions at all because the audience is used to seeing just straight cuts like that on pretty much every TV show that they watch on TV. And to do those kind of simple functions, you know, to, to do a dissolve, to do just a straight cut, to be able to splice footage, to be able to boost audio... Really, those aren't very complex tasks. So, a lot of your lower end video editing suites are going to be able to handle something like that. Really, the only other thing that I'll typically do nowadays is if I really want to focus the audience's attention on a certain portion of the screen, like if there's a deer staying in heavy cover and I want to focus that attention to it, a lot of times I'll use a vignette. And I will, um, so it's basically like a shaded exterior of the image. And like an old photo, if you can think of that, where like the the corners of the image are nice and dark, I'll do that and I will use the the clear part that's not shaded and put that right over essentially where the action is, where I want the audience to focus. And you don't want to really overdo it because that can look cheesy as well. Uh, But just subtle enough where it's kind of pulling the audience's attention, but not overly dramatic is kind of the, the sweet spot for that. One of the reasons that I kind of started adopting the more simpler... A video editing style for me personally and not going really deep into the weeds and, and doing color profiles and grading and all that kind of stuff was really just because I was looking at sort of what I was exporting videos for and what my audience was expecting. So, like, I'm uploading videos to YouTube, the, most of my audience is not going to notice that type of stuff. If I was going to do a film to submit into some kind of festival, yeah, I'd, I'd go through that extra work, but it'd be to the point where I was you know, exporting a three or four or five minute video of a hunt and it would take me, you know, seven, eight hours to edit it. And it just wasn't worth it to do that level of work uh, to export that video. So now my editing time is a lot shorter. And usually I'm spending a lot more time editing the videos that I do for like product reviews, just because there's so many additional things that I want to be able to splice in and film. And then I'm usually watching the footage a couple times over. So if I'm exporting a 20 minute video, usually I've watched every bit of that video, you know, two or three times. So you figure there's probably three times as much time as the video is just replaying the old stuff and making sure I like the way that it flows. So I probably spend an hour just watching the video and that's not including like all of the time that is spent doing the transitions, doing the cuts, uh, aligning audio and things like that. So when you see me upload a 20 minute video on YouTube, that could very easily be six hours plus on the actual editing station. The next thing I want to cover in a little bit more detail is audio. Audio is way more important than people think it is. Nothing kills a piece of footage faster than just having garbage audio. Even if you have great visuals, the audio can just kill it. And a lot of people don't necessarily understand that, but if you take any kind of formal video classes, that's something that they really harp on right away. Audio is important. So on my camera, like I said earlier, I'm using a video mic pro. I like the audio that comes out of that. Since I'm in the woods, I like to use a wind cover too. The one that I use is made by a company called Micover, cover. So it's M I C O V E R. Basically Rode makes their own kind of dead cat thing. And Micover over makes a, a competitive product. Some guy that is really into filming stuff on YouTube did a comparison. I thought the mic over did a better job. So I bought that one. And with the audio, on your main camera. So shotgun mic, in my opinion, is the way to go for self-filming hunts. To set that audio, there's two options. One, you can either leave the audio in automatic gain control, which is just sort of your your typical standard for what the camcorder will record in. And it'll set the levels based on what it thinks is appropriate. So if, if everything's really quiet, it'll boost the levels and try and gather more sound. And if it starts gathering really loud noises, it'll kind of take that gain down to soften out the noises a little bit. So for certain things, like if you're recording, you know, a sports game where people are cheering and then it gets real quiet and stuff like that, and you don't want the audio to blow out, that can be very helpful. But when you're out in the woods, things are a lot more controlled. Usually things aren't too loud. And oftentimes there's not a lot of range difference between like the quietest noises and the loudest noises. So usually I like to have my microphone set on manual gain control. And the way that i'll set that is i'll i'll move the mic levels to to manual and then i when i do my voice or my interviews when i'm usually the first thing in the tree i will just kind of do like a you know mic check whatever you know just kind of talking into the camera in my tree interview voice and i'll set the levels so that that voice is loud enough where i can see the peaks on the meters the audio meters on the the lcd screen but not so high that it's causing clipping uh, if you see clipping on the audio level meters, that means the sound is distorted and it's going to sound really bad when you play it back. So that's just kind of how I set my audio levels in the tree. I find that whatever that level is at tends to be pretty good for anything else that I'm recording. If I happen to, you know, like if if you watch the, uh, the deer hunt video that I did with my shotgun last year in Minnesota, there were scenes where the sandhill cranes were making such a racket, you could hardly even hear yourself think. And in that scenario, I could see the audio levels on that, that, uh, that screen, that LCD screen. And I would essentially just play around with the audio levels till they were loud, but not clipping. Cause I knew that I was going to use a section of that video to just kind of play in for B roll and having those louder audio levels was going to allow me to get a cleaner sound without having to boost it in editing. Typically when you're recording audio for vocals, whether you're doing like an interview or something like that. The rule of thumb is that if you have something that measures in sort of decibels, you want to have the the voice peaking at roughly negative 12 decibels because that gives you a pretty good uh, leeway in terms of you can have some louder portions of the person's voice where they get really excited and they're not going to clip. And then you can have some quieter stuff and it's not going to, you're not going to have to boost it so much in post that you're starting to introduce a lot of noise and make the sound quality go bad. So that's just kind of a general thing. A lot of camcorders don't necessarily have that type of resolution in terms of what their audio levels show. So a lot of times, like I said, I'll just kind of kind of go by feel, making sure the audio that's being captured is loud enough that I'm seeing the peaks, but not getting that clipping. So it's a little bit of a balancing act to figure out exactly where that's going to be on your camcorder. If you have, the means or the desire or the ability recording voice with a lapel mic is generally going to be preferred over a shotgun mic, especially once you get further than a couple feet away from the camera. If you're self-filming and you're in the tree, it's not that big of a deal. I've talked right into the shotgun mic plenty of times and it's usually pretty good. But if you're away from that camera at all, having a lav mic or lapel mic, it's called both names is usually going to give you a lot better audio. So especially if you're filming somebody else, having a lapel mic on them is usually a big deal because if you are following with the camera from 10 or 15 feet away. You'll want that extra audio quality much a shotgun mic to start losing vocal quality. And same thing if you know, you're going to set the camera up to do say like a, a hero footage interview or something like that. And you're that camera set 10 feet, 10, 15 feet away. It's going to sound a lot better typically with a lavalier mic than it will with a shotgun mic. So that's something that usually I won't carry in the tree with me on a self-filming hunt, but it is something that I use all the time when I'm filming reviews, or if I'm, you know, standing in the garage and I have that camera fifteen feet away and I'm recording myself, it sounds a lot better with that lab mic. And that lab mic, it can usually be clipped onto, you know, the inside of your shirt. Uh sometimes if I'm wearing a shirt that doesn't have, you know, like a pocket or it's not like a button up or a V-neck or something like that then a lot of times what I'll do is I'll just take a piece of tape and I'll stick that tape right onto my chest and then I'll hold that microphone wire in place. I don't so I mean I'll use that for like filming stuff in the garage but I'm not doing that out in the woods. It's just too much of a hassle typically so when you decide to start filming hunts, one of the things you have to ask yourself and come to the decision on is whether you're out there more to hunt and just kind of capture the footage as a secondary thing or whether or not capturing the footage is your primary goal and you're willing to capture the footage at the expense of getting the deer. When I was first starting off, I was definitely in the hunt first, film second uh, mentality. So there was a lot of deer that I ended up shooting that I did not get on film because I'd get nervous. I'd say, you know, screw the camera and kind of the moment of truth. I'd either just take the shot or maybe I had the shot lined up right and I drew back and then the deer moved off, walked off screen or something like that. And I didn't want to let down. I just wanted to shoot the deer. And there's nothing wrong with that. It's just kind of your personal opinion. So there's a lot of shots that I missed initially. When I started getting more serious into filming, I started trying to get that shot. And I would literally let down if the deer walked off the screen and remove the camera over to the side and then draw back again. And there were, you know, there's been plenty of deer that I've missed opportunities at because I was trying to film. Usually it's because of movement. Like I mentioned earlier, oftentimes I'd go to move the camera or adjust the setting on the camera. And then by the time I pull my eyes back up, that deer's got me on lockdown. So it was whatever movement I was doing when I wasn't watching the deer, maybe I thought the deer was, um, you know, had its head behind enough foliage or it was eating or doing something else. But then as soon as I looked down at the camera, took my eyes off the deer. Now that deer picked its head up, started looking around and then it caught the movement. So it's definitely challenging. You're probably going to blow some opportunities, but that's just part of the game. Here are some of the things that I've kind of found helped me not only film, but also get the shot and just kind of logistically have everything work somewhat smoothly and stop blowing so many opportunities. One of them is just your initial setup. You know, in some of my videos with tree stands and saddles, I talk about how your ideal shot scenario is a shot where you're not going to have to move much. You're not going to have to stand and turn 180 degrees in your platform. You're not going to have to walk to the opposite side of a tree on a saddle. Your ideal shot scenario is when you pretty much don't have to move. You just pick up your bow, draw back and shoot. Well, that's also kind of the way I look at setting up my filming equipment. The less I have to move my camera equipment, the better. So ideally I have a shot opportunity that's set up and I have my tree stand or saddle and the filming equipment setup. So, all I have to do is turn on the camera, start recording the deer as it comes in, and then once it gets close, I just draw back and shoot. That's like your ideal scenario. And obviously, it doesn't always work like that, but if you try and maximize the times where it does happen like that, you're gonna reduce the risk that you're gonna blow opportunity after opportunity and um, kind of the long term. The other thing that can help a lot, and it seems kind of obvious, but practice with your equipment. If you're in your backyard, or you're out at the range or whatever, you climb your tree stand, you set up your camera equipment, you practice moving the camera and taking shots and just become familiar with the movements. Cause it's a lot different just being able to maneuver your bow around the tree and take shots versus moving the camera, then moving your bow into position. If you have the opportunity where you kind of hear deer coming before you actually see it, that's always a big benefit. A lot of times, if I'm hunting in an area where I can't see far, whether I'm in a, a lot of uh, conifers or there's a lot of canopy on the trees, if I hear something coming, sometimes I won't even look for, if I can't see the deer right away, I'll just immediately start moving to get my camera and my body into position so that I'll have to just draw back and shoot. Cause then oftentimes by the time the deer does expose itself and it can see me and I can see it, I already have everything ready to go. So there's no major additional movement required the real tough scenarios are when they kind of catch you off guard and they're on a bad side of the tree. That's just a really tough uh, position in general. So for some of the opportunities like that, that's why I have, you know, like a, a bow mounted camera, for example, because in the case that I'm not able to, you know, I think get that camera in position, that main camera without spooking the deer. If I'm not super worried about the overall quality of the production I can just record with that bow mounted camera and at least I'll have something and I'll be able to punch my tag. I also like to set up all of my camera settings as soon as I get into the tree. So once I got everything set up, I got my bow in the tree. I'm basically ready to hunt. I'll turn that camera on. I'll review all my settings, make sure I'm filming in 4k. I'll make sure that the white balance is either on auto or it's set to manual mode that I know is going to be good. So for example, if I set manual white balance the day before and it was a cloudy day, but yet it's sunny out the day that I'm hunting, I'll obviously want to switch that. The best case scenario is you have a white balance card in your pack and you can just set that custom kind of as the day goes on. The challenge or the hard part is when you do the custom white balance, it changes very rapidly as the evening progresses or as the morning progresses. If you're hunting in the morning, So usually if you have like a sunny day, your white balance around midday is going to be, you know, in like the the 5,000, 5,500, I want to say off the top of my head. And as it gets later and later in the day, two different things happen. One, the sunlight itself becomes lower in color temperature. So if you have something that's being illuminated by the setting sun, it'll start becoming more like a 4,000, 3,800, 3,500, and it gets you know, lower as the the night progresses. But the stuff in the shade goes the opposite direction. So shade in general is a cooler com- color temperature. So as the night progresses, as that sun starts to go down, if you are all shaded, you're going to have a much different color balance than if you're still filming something that's being lit by that setting sun. So if you want to keep live custom white balances, it can take a lot of your time and you're, you know, mucking around with the camera quite a bit. So there's been plenty of times too, where even though I know that custom white balance is the preferred way to go, a lot of times I'll leave it on auto. And it's usually, at least with the cameras that I have close enough where it's not too big of a deal. Occasionally I'll get some shots where it just doesn't look quite right. And I'll monkey around with the white balance in editing. But for the most part, it's close, right? So again, not making a uh, professional production here, just self-filming a hunt, auto for that type of thing can be sufficient. Same thing in general with everything. I mean, auto focus, auto uh, mic levels, auto white balance, auto exposure. If you're just starting out, like you can, it's fine to leave those settings on auto. The one that can sort of hurt you the most is the auto focus just if it focuses on the foreground branches and debris and stuff, rather than the deer that's behind it. Uh, But again, it's not going to be terribly bad on those cheaper cameras because their image sensors are so small and the depth of field is so large. If you find yourself in a position with any camera and you happen to be on autofocus where you're zoomed in on a deer or something and you can tell that the focus is off and you don't know, you, you panic, you're not exactly sure how to fix it, The easiest thing you can do is just zoom back out all the way. When you zoom back out, that increases your depth of field and you're more likely to have everything back in focus again. So I didn't really explain a whole lot about the depth of field earlier other than, you know, just the sensor size. But sensor size is only one thing that affects depth of field. Your focal length or in other terms, how zoomed in you are also affects your depth of field. Your aperture size affects depth of field and your aperture is basically the iris that lets light into the lens, the bigger it is, the shallower the depth of field is going to be. So like for some guys that are using photography cameras, or they're trying to film a nice B-roll shot and get that nice cinematic look, a lot of times they'll put on an ND filter that's letting less light into the camera that allows them to open up their aperture a lot larger. They'll back up a little bit, use a larger focal length lens, and those things all combined, you know, with a nice big, large image sensor, can give you a really shallow depth of field. So it's good for, you know, nice, pretty looking cinematic shots, but again, it can kind of hurt you when you're self-filming having that shallow depth of field because it makes the focus much more critical to hit properly. One more thing that can really help you logistically in the tree to be able to pull everything off is to really pay attention to how and when you move. So typically when I'm moving in the tree with the camera, I want to maximize the amount of time that my eyes are on the deer and I want to minimize the amount of movement that I make when my eyes are not on the deer. Like I said before, so often what happens is you take your eyes off the deer to do a movement and by the time you pick your eyes back up and look at the deer again, it's got you pinned. So if you do your movement while you're watching the deer, you'll be able to tell right away if that deer picks its head up and you can stop immediately. The more movement you can do, sort of in your peripherals while you're watching the deer, the better. And once the movement is made, once you've gotten that hand to the camera, then you can shift your focus over to the camera, do whatever adjustments you want to do. But then before you move back to your original stance, pick your eyes back up again, double check that that deer is still doing whatever it was doing, and you can get away with the movement again. That's probably overall the biggest logistical tip that I can give. And the most mistakes that I've made are related to that. And being able to sort of control that movement has made probably the biggest impact on being able to pull off a self filmed hunt. It's just as important as being familiar with your equipment. It's just as important as having the right setup, if not more important than those things, because ultimately it doesn't matter how familiar you are with the equipment. If you get picked out in the tree, it's game over. So I've covered, I feel like a lot of stuff regarding self filming. There's obviously way more information in general. So if you guys have any more specific questions, feel free to shoot them my way. We do have a couple videos on YouTube. Um, on my channel, there's three older videos that I made for self-filming hunts. One of them was camcorders. One of them was DSLRs and the other one was video editing. made those several years ago. And then more recently, my buddy Austin Schaffner and I put together a series of 10, uh, filming videos. And they weren't all just related to self-filming. They were filming hunts in general. So there's a lot of different categories there, but Austin is a professional videographer. He deals with the stuff day in and day out. He's filmed professional hunters for, you know, like the sportsman's channel. He's uh, gone out and done filming for like reality TV shows and that type of thing. So he's definitely a huge wealth of information. I'm glad to have him as a buddy to be able to, to leverage for a lot of my own personal camera questions. And he kind of narrates that whole 10 part series that's posted on the DIY sportsman YouTube channel. I also just uploaded a video not too long ago showing the logistics of the actual setup for filming a hunt in a saddle, where I put the camera arm where I like to have the second angle, just to give you a little bit better visual if it wasn't all clear in the podcast. And then I did a video on the Hunting Beast camera arm review way back when, but I do have a segment toward the end of that video where I basically show how I would set up a camera arm with a tree stand. And that's pretty much still the same way that I set up a camera arm in the tree stand. It's basically right off your strong side just above thigh level as you're sitting so pretty straightforward there hope you guys enjoyed this podcast hope it was helpful for those who are looking to get into self-filming or maybe already doing it and looking to get kind of some more information sportsman's nation podcast network make sure to leave us a review on itunes follow the social media pages instagram facebook make sure to spread the word i know recently on forums and, and facebook pages i see the sportsman's nation pop up more and more when people are asking for recommendations for podcasts. So that's really awesome to see. I know Dan likes that a lot as well. And it's you know helpful and great news for all the podcasts on the network. We're really excited to see when that kind of stuff pops up. So that'll do it until next time. Thanks for listening.